This morning, we are continuing uh, with the I Am Statement series. And so if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to John chapter 10. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, you may be able to download one real quick on your phone, and uh, that'll be an easy way to get through there. I read in the English Standard Version, the ESV. Uh, If you don't have a Bible and you don't want to download it um, in front of you in one of the chairs, there should be a gray paper Bible. You're welcome to use that, and it's on page 523 in the gray Bible. And while you're, uh, you're turning there, let me just say that if you're uh, visiting with us or, or maybe you're, you're new to church or maybe if it's even been a while and you haven't been to church in a long time, it, um, uh, we're welcome, glad that you're here. This is the part of our meeting together when we, uh, we focus on a small section of the Bible and uh, do some teaching and make some application to your life today. And, uh, and I can remember as a, a kid who was new to church, as a teenager, hadn't been to church in a long time, just Catholic church, uh, kind of on Christmas and Easter for a period of years, that when I walked into a Bible church like this one, uh, I, I said it last week, it just felt strange. Not bad, just strange. They were... There was a sense of peace. Uh, people were friendly and warm and welcoming and smiling, and there was joy in their life, and I didn't have that. And, and I remember singing songs and trying to figure out, you know, do I have a singing voice? I don't think so. I'm going to just mouth the words and, and trying to figure out different words that came on the screen and just being uncomfortable in the environment because I wasn't used to it, but overall uh, recognizing that there was a sense of God's presence and nearness and peace as as the speaker delivered uh, teaching on the Bible passage. And, and so my prayer for you is that if you're visiting with us or if you're new to church, that, that you would experience God and His presence today and that He might speak to you. We are covering the I Am statements. Uh, Jesus in the Gospel of John gives us seven statements. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. That's what we talked about last week. This week is I'm the good shepherd. On Easter Sunday, we covered I am the resurrection and the life. Next week, we cover I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then to wrap it up in June, uh, we will, I'll preach uh, I am the true vine. Um, this morning, I'm going to ask Pat to come and uh, read for us. He's going to read our passage of Scripture. And, uh, so Pat, come on up. John chapter 10, verses 11 through 21. Good morning, everyone. John chapter 10, starting at 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not know his own, uh, who does not know, uh, who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have nothing and, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down, lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. 
There was again a division amongst the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said that these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a deep man open the eyes of the blind? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we see our Lord Jesus. We see our good shepherd. And we see that he cares and and takes care of the flock. And so, Lord, as we gather here today, the flock, I pray that you continue to reveal yourself to us and that you give Gibson the words to speak to encourage us and help shepherd us in his own way. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Pat. Well, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. And immediately the crowd uh, knew the language that he was using, uh, Israel, the Old Testament, uh, all that they had experienced in the revelation of God for thousands of years had led to this language uh, connecting with them very well. Uh, let's just get a little bit of context so that we understand why Jesus is saying, I'm the good shepherd at this particular time and at this particular phase of his ministry and who's he even talking to. So let's get just a little bit of context just to get sort of a 30,000 view um, a fit view. Let's just expand out a little bit. Jesus's public ministry started when he was 30 years old. And it started when he went to be baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist. And for 18 months or so after that, Jesus labored in calling disciples and investing in a few people. It wasn't really until about 18 months, maybe 16 months into his ministry, that John the Baptist was imprisoned. And then Jesus began to do public ministry, crowd ministry. There's a statement that says that uh, Jesus was baptizing more people than John did. And that, that's John's uh, biggest uh, ministry was baptizing people in the Jordan River. Jesus, when John was imprisoned, began to take on a larger public crowd ministry, leading us to about the last year and a half uh, before he was crucified. His crowd ministry expanded so much so that he couldn't really go into towns or villages all around Israel any longer. He had to stay outside because of the, the numbers of people, the sheer numbers of people uh, who would come to him. Uh, at some point, uh, about six months until he uh, sets his face to Jerusalem, he takes his disciples um, up into the north part of Israel, and there he tells them uh, the statement that um, the, the church will expand and the gates of Hades shall not overcome it. Uh, and then as he makes his way down, they go to the mount where Jesus is transfigured in front of James and Peter and John. And then he comes down, and this is John 6 around this time, he starts to thin out the crowd by making these claims about himself. They followed him because he did these incredible public ministry, uh, healings and miracles. But at some point, Jesus began to reveal more of who he is with his words. And during that time, he divided the crowds. Uh, about six months before his crucifixion, maybe seven months, in September, uh, Jesus was crucified. Uh, we pinpoint it to Friday, April 3rd in 33 AD at 33 years old about, uh, as best as we can tell. And this was about six or seven months before that happened, that crucifixion. What we're reading today happened about six months before, and Jesus has been revealing more of himself and making these claims to the degree that the passage that Pat just read, people were responding to saying, this guy's insane. This guy has a demon. 
And crowds did not know how to respond to him because he would do these incredible things, but then he would make these outrageous claims. Just for example, in chapter 8, Jesus claims to be the Messiah, the Savior of the world. He claims to be the Son of God. He claims to be eternal. He says, before Abraham was, I am. He claimed to be the light of the entire world, which gives light to everyone who follows him. He says in chapter 8, he alone is able to judge because he and the Father are together and united in judgment. He says that the Father, God himself, bears witness about who I am. He says, I am from above, meaning he's saying, I came from heaven. He tells the Pharisees and the religious leaders, you will die in your sins unless you believe that I'm the Savior of the world. And he said, and you will know that I'm the Savior of the world when you have lifted up the Son of Man, which was a messianic title from Ezekiel hundreds of years earlier. Jesus also said in John 8, I do everything with the authority that God the Father gave me. He said, I always please God the Father. A sinless claim there. Jesus also said, if you abide in me, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. He said, if I the Son set you free, you will be free indeed. He makes this statement in John 8, not one of you can convict me of sin, claiming to be completely sinless, and without even original sin. See, the Bible teaches that each one of us are born with a sin nature. That is, we can't help um, sinning against God. Have you ever um, told a one-year-old, you know, don't touch that? Um, They're immediately hardwired to disobey their parents, right? Have you ever tried to see a two-year-old and say, you know, you can't have that cookie, and they've got chocolate all over their mouth. Did you eat that cookie? And they say, no, I didn't eat any, right? They are hardwired to lie and to deceive and to disobey their parents because that's our sin nature at work within us. Jesus is claiming to not have that. Jesus claimed to be sinless. He said, you can't hear me, my words, and understand them because you don't hear God's words. He says, if you keep my words, you will never see death. He says, God the Father glorifies me. He said, I know God the Father, but you don't. He said, Abraham rejoiced about seeing me. He saw me and was glad because before Abraham existed, I am claiming eternality. Eight times in Jesus, in John chapter 8, Jesus claims to be from above. Eight times. In this way, in the latter parts of Jesus' earthly ministry, he began to peel back the layers of who he is revealing himself as God himself. And for that reason, crowds were divided. As as a matter of fact, at the end of chapter 8, you see the Pharisees picking up stones to stone him. In John 8, 59, so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. If they had a gun, they would have shot him on the spot. I can't imagine their robe and the, what that might have looked like, but, but they were looking for rocks and, and Jesus was able to scurry and hide himself. Jesus escapes in John 8, and then as he escapes the temple complex, 
He's leaving his disciples. They may be saying, oh, we almost died. That was a near-death experience. And as they're leaving, maybe they're encouraging Jesus, you know, thank God we got out of there safe and we're alive. Now let's just lay low and get to the Mount of Olives and get out of this area. And in true Jesus fashion, in John chapter 9, verse 1, just after having escaped death, he passes by through the gate, because this is where blind men would have set up and begged by the gate when people are walking in and out. Jesus couldn't help himself as he passed by, fleeing this near-death experience from the Pharisees and the religious leaders. He sees a man born blind. And then in the context of that, Jesus heals the guy. He spat on the ground, verse 6, made some mud, and then he anointed the guy's eyes with the mud. Uh, As a new believer reading these passages, I was always kind of grossed out by that a little bit. And then also kind of trying to wonder why Jesus would make mud and and cake it on the guys. I just didn't understand the scientific part of it. I I still don't necessarily. but, But the point is that Jesus heals the guy, tells him to go and wash the mud off. And when he does, he came back with his eyesight. This was an older guy, born blind, would have sat at the same gate every day. And it causes such an uproar that um, all the Pharisees come and find him and they interview him and, and how did you get healed and why did you get healed and, and who did this and Jesus did this. And then all these things happen so that now they catch up to Jesus. And that same day, it's, it appears from the way John writes the scripture that now Jesus is in a confrontation with the Pharisees. And then in that passage last week, he said, I'm the good shepherd. All those who are not are thieves and robbers and the sheep don't listen to them, indicting them in front of this crowd. Now in John 10 verse 11, he continues, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And that's the main point of our passage today is that Jesus is a good shepherd. And we see this in four ways. He loves the Father and he pleases him. That's number one. Number two, he lays down his life for the sheep. That's how he's a good shepherd. He loves and knows the sheep. That's the third way he's a good shepherd. And then the fourth way is he brings all the sheep together. And we're going to get to that. But I think the most helpful way for us to understand this passage might be to break down the figure of speech. Look back at verse 6 in John chapter 10. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they didn't understand what he was saying. So we know this is a figure of speech, and so we're going to uh, break down the figure of speech. It's like a metaphor or a simile. Um, I'm not smart enough to know the difference between those two. Um, but in this metaphor, we're going to, th- I think it's more helpful for us to learn the cast of characters. So there's four characters that we're going to look at there's the sheep, right? Uh, in Jesus' metaphor, there's the sheep, there's the wolf. There's the hired hand, and then there's the shepherd. So let's start with the sheep. Jesus describes sheep in John 10, verses 11 through um, 18. And he talks about the sheep um, are under attack, and the sheep uh, will know him, and the sheep are from his fold, and they will listen to him. So who are the sheep? Well, the sheep are simply people, just humans. Uh, and, th- and Jesus gets even more specific about who the sheep are. He calls the sheep his own. They are possessive. 
There is a distinction among all the people in the world, biblically speaking. And we, we, we make a distinction between people based on skin color or based on language or based on uh, culture or based on where they live or where they grew up or based on their neighborhood. We have all kinds of ways that we divide people groups. It's not that way biblically. God does not divide people biblically in the same way that we do, linguistically, uh, culturally, uh, geographically. He doesn't divide us in that way. God has uh, um, two categories of people, biblically speaking. They are mine and not mine. He calls them sheep and goats in Matthew 25. He calls them weeds and wheat. He calls the, the only two categories that God gives are those, according to Revelation 20, those whose names are written in the book of life and those whose names are not. There are those whom God is calling and they are listening to him and they are his. And coincidentally, your current state turns out to be somewhat inconsequential. Do you understand? He says, uh, uh, I have sheep, they're not mine, or they're mine, but I haven't called them yet. They're not of this sheepfold. Uh, if you think back to Paul, as Paul goes out of Athens and out of being chased from one city to another, he gets to Athens, then he finally gets to Corinth, and God says to him, don't fear in Corinth, nobody's going to hurt you here, and continue preaching because I have many people in this city. I have many people in the city that he hasn't even preached yet. Paul hasn't even opened his mouth and God's already saying, I have many people, many sheep that, I haven't, that I'm calling right now and that they will be gathered as you preach. You see, your current state might be inconsequential at the moment that you can be God's, you can be one of Jesus' sheep and you haven't yet responded to his call. We call this the effectual calling. The effectual calling is when God summons people to himself through the human proclamation of the gospel so that they respond in saving faith. You see, I can trace this in my own life. Raised in a, a fairly new age family where uh, you know, there were times when the, uh, we, there were just all kinds of influences. New age, Baha'i. I had a, a, um, a brother you know, married a Wiccan witch and there were um, all kinds of things. The only thing that was not tolerated in our family was the Bible and Christianity. All right. Other than that, anything went. We would have chanting circles from different poets and groups that would come into our house and all kinds of different influences. There were uh, Eastern meditation books and philosophy books and all kinds of stuff about everything, but there were very few Bibles in our house. But even still, I can remember all these times when I, I could hear God calling me. Um, I, I would had a Sunday school book uh, from my grandparents who would take us to Catholic church from time to time. And one of the first words I learned to sound out, uh, I found this little octagonal uh, end table. Do you remember those uh, 70s kind of furniture that uh, the door opened it, we would stack all the books in there. There was a, I would just pick a book out of there and I picked out a book and it said reconciliation. And I began to sound it out and it would talk about Jesus in different verses. And, and I can remember that in, in kindergarten, first grade. 
I can remember going to Sunday school or vacation Bible school with neighborhood friends that would invite me and watching them put the flannel gram up on the wall about Moses and teaching the Bible. And I can remember in all these occurrences, even as a little kid, kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade, I got invited to this Pentecostal revival. I mean, it was crazy music and loud speakers and a, and a revival speaker. And I can't remember a single thing he said until the very end, he was giving an invitation and an altar call for people to come forward and to receive Jesus. And as a lost kid, I just remember feeling like I had to go up there. And I didn't, but there was this effectual calling in my life that by the time I was 17 years old and my moralistic choices had crashed around me and my life was just a debris trail of wreckage at that particular time, getting to a point of desperation and crying out, God, if you're out there, I need your help. And him sending a guy to my door to share the gospel. See, that proclamation of the gospel completed the effectual calling of God that had been taking place for years before I was ever his own. He called me his own. Ephesians 1 says, um, Ephesians 1 describes that he has called you since the beginning, since the, the, before the foundations of the world, he has been calling you. Isn't that something? God knows his own, and it doesn't matter if they've even been born yet. This effectual calling is when God summons people to himself through the human proclamation of the gospel. You might even be um, not yet a Christian here in this room, and, and already there's something happening in your spirit. <laughs> you don't even know how to explain it. You don't even know maybe the language or the songs that we're singing or anything, but, but you feel drawn and, and like God is calling you. That's Jesus saying, the sheep who are my own hear my voice. He also further distinguishes the sheep, and he says, I have sheep that are not of this sheepfold. What's he talking about? A sheepfold was where they just stuck the sheep at night, and a village or a town uh, or a rural area might have one. It might have been a cave. It could have been backed against the wall of a city, but it had, uh, when all the shepherds would lead their sheep out into the fields during the day, and they would pasture and graze and, and drink from streams and all those things, and the shepherd would bring them back in. All the shepherds would bring all the she sheep back into the, the city sheepfold and they would go in one by one and then uh, there would be a night guard who would watch over the sheep and guard the door to make sure no thieves and robbers got in. Jesus said, I have sheep who are not of this sheepfold. What did he mean? He's saying that I have sheep not in the nation of Israel. This is the nation of Israel. He's saying, I have sheep who are outside of the nation of Israel. And this was scandalous. This is a major shift in redemptive history. See, up until this point, the prophets, the kings, the leaders, the entire sacrificial system, everything in Israel was for Israel to be a light to the nations and the nations would come and they would see the glory of God within the nation Israel and they could be proselytes or become part of Israel. But Israel was where God's redemptive activity was happening. Jesus saying, now I'm going to close the window of salvation and open it for the world was scandalous. Jesus will call people from the world. He's talking about Gentiles. He's talking about you and I. Anyone who is not uh, a Jew by birth. And that currently, the window of opportunity for the salvation of the Gentiles is still open. 
Many people believe that the Bible describes a time toward the end times when the, the, the door will be opened and many people from Israel will then be saved again. So that's the people. Jesus is calling people. That's what the sheep are. The next character in his metaphor is the wolf. According to Jesus, the wolf comes in and he does two things. He snatches and he scatters. He snatches and scatters. He says um, uh, in John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Um, The one who is the hired hand and not the shepherd, he sees the wolf coming, leaves the sheep, flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them in verse 12. So what's the wolf? The wolf is anyone who threatens the sheep. Anyone who threatens the sheep. Listen, it could be Satan and his demonic horde. The Bible describes in Ephesians 6, the hierarchy, the powers, the, um, the authorities, the rulers of this dark world. That Ephesians 6 description understands that, uh, you know, the Bible says that a third of the angels followed Satan in his rebellion and became this sort of demonic, angelic force in rebellion against God. A third. That wolf could be that satanic threat or a worldly system set up by that satanic threat. It certainly could include false uh, teachers, cults arising outside of the church to deceive people. That's part of that satanic worldly system. could also be false teachers from inside the church. In Acts chapter, I think it's 20, Paul is with the Ephesian leaders and they're on the coast of Miletus and he's telling them, you're never going to see my face again. I'm going to Jerusalem and I know that everywhere I go there's trouble and tribulation. And there was this emotional scene, kneeling on the beach, praying with Paul on his last time with him. And he said, I know that after I leave, vicious wolves will come in and, and won't spare the flock and some will even arise from among this number of people. See, wolves can come up from within the church. That's why 1 John tells us to test the spirits in 1 John 4. Not everyone who uh, says they're a Christian is a Christian. Not everyone. That's why you have to be discerning when you flip on a TV and you're listening to a TV preacher or you watch a, a podcast. You've got to be very discerning and careful who you listen to. The wolf could be a false teacher from inside the church, from outside the church, but it's any threat Let's move on. The hired hand. Jesus describes this hired hand. In verse 12 of John 10, he says, He who is a hired hand and is not a shepherd, he doesn't own the sheep, sees the wolf coming, leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. Then he says again in John 4, uh, verse 14, I'm the good shepherd. And then he contrasts himself with the hired hand. So who's the hired hand? It's the people that he's talking to right now. Remember in this context, he's just fled from them. In John 8, they picked up stones to kill him and he ran out of the temple, through the city of Jerusalem, stopped at the gate, heals the man born blind. They do their investigation and then they catch up to Jesus later. And in that same moment, in that same time, those same people who want to kill him in front of this crowd, Jesus is dialoguing with them, telling them this story and telling the crowd and telling his apostles and disciples that this hired hand are the religious leaders who selfishly ruled over Israel. 
The spiritual leaders of Israel, they're the hired hand. They don't care for the people. When, when there's a threat against the people, they don't care. Jesus identifies the religious leaders who selfishly ruled in Israel as the hired hand. Hungry for their own gain, hungry for their own prosperity, hungry for their own power. The hired hand is not a shepherd. What is he then? Is this the guy that watches the sheep pen at night? No, that's the, that's the, the gatekeeper. That's a different person. The, the, the hired hand does similar activities. Look at verses 12 through 13. He's watching, right? He's watching over the sheep. He sees wolves. He doesn't own the sheep. And because he sees wolves, he leaves the sheep. He flees the sheep, and he doesn't care about the sheep. That's what the hired hand is like. And these are the religious leaders, the very ones that Jesus was talking to. Now listen, shepherding language is all over the Old Testament. But there's one passage that pinpoints this particular situation that Jesus is in at the moment. Turn with me to Ezekiel 34. Old Testament book, Jeremiah, uh, Isaiah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, and then Ezekiel. If you hit Jeremiah and Isaiah, make a right turn. <laughs> it's right after the book of Lamentations. Ezekiel, one of the major prophets. In Ezekiel chapter 34, and put your little ribbon tab in there because we're going to come back to it in a little while. Let me put my ribbon in John 10 and then my other ribbon <laughs> in John, Ezekiel 34. Let's, let's look at Ezekiel 34. This is hundreds of years before this moment. The prophet Ezekiel, chapter 34, verse 1, The word of the Lord came to me, <clears throat> Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. Not too long ago, somebody turned me on to an Instagram account uh, about um, pastors and, uh, and these sort of prosperity um, teachers, and it, it inventories their outfit as they're preaching. And <clears throat> you'll see guys who are preaching in $10,000 clothes. Shoes that cost $6,000 and, and all this sort of luxury and private jets and Maseratis and cars like that. Listen, these are the ones who eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. That is a false prophet or a false teacher. Anyone who is seeking to financially gain from the sheep. That's an instant sign of Ezekiel 34. In, 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 in verse 4, he says, The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, 
and with force and harshness you have ruled them. Listen, in last week's uh, passage, we looked at Matthew 23, the seven woes against the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day, and Jesus kept calling them, woe to you, hypocrites. You, you travel across land and sea to make one convert, and then you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Jesus didn't mix words for the most religious people of the day. And he compares them to this Ezekiel 34 passage, verse 5. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Remember that passage in Matthew 9 when the crowds came to Jesus? And it says, as he looked over the crowds, I think it's verse 35 of Matthew 9. Somebody can fact check me. I may be wrong, but, but it says, as he looked over the crowds, he saw that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, and he had compassion on them. And he said to them, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he may raise up uh, people to go out uh, into the harvest field. The fields are ripe for harvest, I think is the rest of that passage. But he had compassion on these crowds that were scattered. Ezekiel 34, 6, my sheep were scattered. What does uh, the wolf do? He scatters, right? The, the wolf um, scattered, we read about that. Continuing in Ezekiel 34, 7 through 10. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and because my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there is no shepherd, and because my shepherds have not searched for the sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed the sheep. Uh, Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths and be f- uh, that they may not be food for them. Now flip back over to John 10. It's in that context that Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Now the Greek construction there may or may not make a difference, but it actually says, I am the shepherd, the good one. I am the shepherd, the good one. That's what it says in, um, in, in John 10, verse 11, and then he says it again, uh, I am the shepherd, the good one, in that same passage. And we read Psalm 23 earlier, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, he leads me beside still waters and in the green pasture. There's all kinds of shepherding language all over. In Psalm 80, God is the shepherd. Moses was a shepherd. In Exodus 1 uh, through 3, um, David was the most famous shepherd. You remember when he goes to fight Goliath um, and Saul is talking to him and, and David's like, I'll go fight that big giant. I don't care. Uh, and what, is, what does Saul say? He, he's been fighting since you were a toddler. He's a man's man. He's nine feet tall. You're not going to fight him. And what does David say? As a shepherd... Anytime a lion would come and try to tear a sheep, I would, I would fight a lion. Anytime a bear would come down, I would fight a bear. David was the most famous shepherd because for the life of a sheep, he risked his life and would go fight a bear or a mountain lion. 
That's the shepherding language that Jesus picks up on. So flip back to Ezekiel 34. Listen to what Jesus is saying when he says, I'm the shepherd, the good one. In Ezekiel 34, verse 11, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among the sheep that have been scattered, so so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds, clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the people's and will gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak, the fat and the strong. I will destroy and I will feed them. Uh, I will feed them in justice. As for you, my flock, thus says the Lord God, behold, I judge between sheep and sheep between rams and goats. It's not enough for you to feed on the good pasture that you must tread down with your feet the rest of the pasture and to drink of the clear water that you must muddy the rest of the water with your feet. And must my sheep eat what you have trodden with your feet and drink what you have muddied with your feet? Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, behold, I, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep because you push with side and shoulder and thrust at all the weak with your horns till you have scattered them abroad, I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey and I will judge between sheep and sheep and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them and he shall uh, be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. What are you talking about? talking about Jesus, right? That's when the Sunday school answer, even if you didn't hear anything I just said, you you know the answer is probably Jesus, right? Jesus is the good shepherd. So when he says, I am the shepherd, the good one, they knew exactly what he was referring to. They knew Ezekiel 34. They knew who he was. And so Jesus does four things. He lays down his life for the sheep. He knows his sheep. He pleases his father and he unites the sheep. He lays down his life. Says it in this passage four times. He says, I lay down my life. He willingly gives his life. And listen, Jesus dying matters a lot more than, let's say, if I died for you. All right, let's say you had an organ failure and, and I gave you one of my organs to save your life and somehow during that transplant I died and you lived, that would be helpful, right? You would get more years and months, but, but it wouldn't save you. Let's say you lived 10 more years and then you died. It wouldn't save you from sin and judgment from God. My life would be helpful. It would be touching. It would be noble. You would appreciate it, but it wouldn't ultimately save you. Jesus's life matters. His death is of actual significance. Why? Because it is atoning. What does atoning mean? Atoning means 
make something right when it's gone wrong, right? You teach your kids this. You hurt somebody, you say sorry, and you have to make up for it. You, you wreck somebody's car. Atonement means you pay for it, you get it fixed, and you make atonement. You make amends. Jesus' death paid for what went wrong. God's holiness and justice demanded that sin had to be punished. It had to be punished. You would never vote for a judge if he let a, a convicted murderer go. We find you guilty, but because you're a nice guy, I'm going to let you go. No one would tolerate that in our society. A good judge doesn't let a guilty murderer go. God is a good judge. He has to punish sin, and his way through it was to become a man, live a sinless life, and then take the atoning punishment. So when Jesus died, when Jesus lays down his life, it means something more. It means that he is willingly giving his life. He didn't have to. I mean, there were oppor- I mean he did, but there are opportunities for Jesus to escape, right? You remember in John 11, uh, Jesus is far away from Jerusalem. He's escaped from all this, and he gets word that Lazarus is dead. And his disciples say, um, Jesus said, hey, let's go back to Judea. Our friend Lazarus is asleep, right? Do you remember that passage? In that passage, uh, the disciples say, why do you want to go back there? They were just trying to kill you there. He's talking about this. So now you want to go back? And Jesus could have said, oh, yeah, you're right. Uh, let's just not go back to, to Jerusalem. But he said, no, we're going to work, walk in the day, and, and what happens in the day, God is in control. He, he doesn't worry about that. It, he could have escaped right there. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is crying out, take this cup for me, right? You and I, dark garden, middle of the night, all your buddies that you asked to pray for you are fast asleep. You and I might have just made a beeline for the Mediterranean, right? Caught a ship, headed to Tarshish, and just bailed on the whole, um, you know, redemption, crucifixion part. Jesus could have escaped. There was a moment there where he's crying out in the garden, God, take this cup for me. There's no one awake. There's no one watching. He could have just left. But he doesn't because he lays his own life down. He goes through the crucifixion. He did it to please the Father and to demonstrate his love for God. And listen, he did it to demonstrate his love for you. It's just that simple. You matter to God. You might say, well, some people matter, but, but you don't know me. You don't know what I've done. You don't know the sins I've committed. You don't know the, the times that I've hardened my heart against God and the times when I just didn't want anything to do with Him. Scripture is clear. Jesus' atoning death was for all people, though its application is for the sheep. Every person has intrinsic value and dignity and worth. That's called the Imago Dei, that we bear the image of God. And he loves you because of that. You matter. He lays down his life for people. There are no shortage of people who would die for other things. Jesus could have laid down his life for an ideal. People do that, right? For a philosophy. He could have done it to be a hero. He doesn't care about people. He just wants to be a hero, to satisfy some sort of hero complex, to be recorded for all history or something like that. But he says, no, I lay down my life out of obedience to the Father for you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus loves you. And he lays down his life 
and evidence of that. So let's move on to the last thing. How did the crowd respond? The crowd is divided. Look at verses 19 through 21. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? But other people said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Listen, this isn't the first time that Jesus has ever divided a crowd. From John 6 until now, crowds are always divided about Jesus. I read a story the other day about rejection therapy. This guy went through um, 100 days trying to get rejected every day. Um, This is so fascinating. He said, I I was afraid of rejection, and so I went to be rejected um, every day. And so he would walk up at a Burger King or wherever he was, and one time he just said, um, hey, can I get a burger refill? And the guy said, what's a burger refill? He's like, you know, like a drink refill, but a burger refill. He said, we don't do that here. (laughs) And to another person, the next day he walked up and he just said, I have have this flower, can I plant it in your backyard? Uh, And the guy said, no. (laughs) And he said, well, okay, I understand no, um, but through the 100 days of rejection, he learned to ask a great question. He said, um, after I get rejected, I would say, I understand no, and I can accept the, the no, but can you just tell me why? And the guy with the flower offer said, well, my dog tears up everything I plant in the backyard, and so I don't want to ruin your flower. Well, that's, that's helpful. But then he said, but Connie across the street, if you go over to her house and knock on her door, she loves flowers. So he did. He walked over to the next door, he knocked on the door, and he said, um, your neighbor said it, um, I could plant this flower in your backyard and that you wouldn't mind expecting a no, right? And, and she said, oh my gosh, I love you. Look, come in. And she let him plant the flower. And, and he went through this entire thing of rejection therapy. I was talking to Grayson about this the other day. And he said, have you ever been through this kind of rejection? And I said, yeah, I, I, I used to do door-to-door evangelism. I would pack a thousand tracks in my backpack and I would just go door-to-door asking people uh, what they know about Jesus. And if they would like to, you know, if they died, if they would go to heaven, if, they're, if, if they, you know, face God today, would they die? And do, what do they know about Jesus? All, and listen, you want to talk about rejection therapy, Put a stack of Bibles in your backpack and go walk through your neighborhood and ask people about Jesus. Listen, try this social experiment. Next time you're at a wedding or you're giving a speech or you're in a crowd or you're at a dinner party, just bring up Jesus. And some people are just going to walk away. Some people are going to roll their eyes. Some people are going to... It's Jesus is divisive back then. He's divisive today. My prediction, though is that in any crowd that you bring up Jesus, some will believe, some will put it off, and some will mock you. That's a 33% chance, uh, a 66% chance in your favor. If some want to hear more, or if some believe, in Acts, I, I can verify that statistic. In Acts 17, Paul's preaching in Athens, and it says, uh, when they heard about the resurrection from the dead, some people mocked him. But others said, we will hear you again. And then some believed, right? So the crowd was split, split into three. Some believed, some said, I want to hear more about this. And some just mocked him in disbelief. The crowds were divided about Jesus. They're always going to be divided about Jesus. But what about you? How would you respond? Would you be among those who mock? Sure, there are people in this crowd who don't want to be here. Drugged by somebody, doing their best just to get through and then get on to something else. 
not interested in Jesus. Others of you have been kicking the tires of Christianity for a while, reading your Bible and praying and trying to investigate, wanting to hear more. Many others of you uh, are believers. You've placed your faith and trust in Christ. How would you have responded? Maybe different at different times in your life. Maybe when you were young, you didn't want to hear this at all, but now you're interested. Now it's Jesus has gripped your attention and the effectual calling is working. Maybe you're listening now with eagerness and wonder. Maybe now you're just sleepy and want me to end. Let me end with this. If Jesus is the good shepherd, take note of the characteristics of the good shepherd. He is trustworthy and good. He leads well. He loves you. He loves the Father. And He will not let you go. Just look down a little bit. In John chapter 10, verse 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. If you're in Christ... His grip on you is it's tighter than your hand on your two-year-old in a crowd, right? When you've got a two-year-old wandering through a crowd, if you don't have a leash, you've got a shirt, by the shirt, you've got him by the hand in a crowded area. Jesus' hand on you is tighter than that. That's the good shepherd. So what do we need to do to be good sheep? You might say, go to church, read my Bible, say my prayers, tell others. Listen, it goes beyond those sort of Sunday school answers. If he's trustworthy and good, it means you can trust him with your life. If he leads you well, it means you should follow him. You want to follow him and you don't want to wander from him. If he loves you, you mean, it means you can be satisfied and content to walk with him in his light and love and nothing else will satisfy you. You don't have to chase after lesser loves you don't have to seek after that which doesn't satisfy. Jesus said, I'm the living water. Anyone who believes in me, rivers of water will flow from you. You can be quenching the thirst of people by sharing the gospel after you're satisfied as well. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the good shepherd. Thank you that you are trustworthy and good, that you lead us well, that you love us. We thank you that you have compassion on those who are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That your compassion compels us to mission. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the field. By your word, you say that there are people who are yours who have not yet believed, that they will believe with the verbal proclamation of the gospel. So may we be a people. As we're gathered here this morning, that in 20 minutes as we're sent out, that we would be sent out to proclaim the gospel, that those who are yours may know you. And may those who don't know you this morning, may today be the day of surrender, that they surrender their life to the good shepherd. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.